You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, everybody, I'm away this week, and I was going to hang a gone fishing sign here at the top of the show, figuratively speaking, but something caught my eye right before I headed to the airport. Jill Duggar is giving sex advice. Jill Duggar of Duggar fame. Her mom and dad are those deeply creepy dominionist Christians who starred in that awful reality show and that hilarious vagina. It's not a clown car meme. Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar, the smiling public face of the quiverful movement, which aims to take over the country and impose Christian Sharia law on the rest of us by outbreeding us all. The hilarious hijinks of this wannabe fascist clan were documented on TLC's 19 Kids and Counting for eight long, miserable cover of Us magazine years. Then we found out the oldest Duggar kid, Josh, molested a bunch of girls and was a member of Ashley Madison, and TLC canceled Mom and Dad's show because of the Josh Duggar scandal. And we all promptly forgot about the Duggars. Well, it turns out the Duggars, some of them at least, never went off the air. The last episode of 19 Kids and Counting, which was originally 17 Kids and Counting, but the kids kept coming. The last episode of 19 Kids and Counting aired on May 19th, 2015. And the first episode of Counting On, which follows the lives of the older Duggar daughters, Jessa, Jill, Joyanna, and Jinger, or Ginger, I don't know if that G is hard, that aired on December 13th, 2015. So don't worry, America. No Duggars had to get a real job in the wake of the cancellation of 19 Kids and Counting. Anyway, Jill is giving sex advice on her blog. You know, it's comforting to know that someone out there is still blogging. It's like finding out you have a neighbor who churns butter. And how's Jill's sex advice? Well, surprisingly, not all bad. There's some good stuff buried under bad takes like guard against fulfilling sexual desires alone and women should always be available for sex. Excuse me, don't... Women, even wives, have to sleep. Also, she suggests that wives should make an effort to look good for their husbands, but nothing about husbands making an effort to look good for their wives. But still, Jill talks about how important regular sex is to her. She means regular as in on the regular, not regular as in vanilla or don't slap my ass and call me a whore regular. She suggests three times a week for young newlyweds, which seems doable, particularly if a couple takes Jill's advice about mixing it up which is a little like my advice about mixing it up. Here's Jill. And when you may not be able to actually have intercourse for a period of time for health issues, find other ways to have fun and be intimate. All right, pretty good. I think you should mix it up and find other ways to be fun and intimate without a health crisis that prevents you from having intercourse. But but, but pretty good. She also says be open with your spouse about your desires and change things up to keep it exciting. And then cites two Bible verses to support that one, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. I looked them up. I don't see the link. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And 1 Corinthians 7, 5, defraud ye not of one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not. 
all right, I don't see the link, but hey, if a real reach of a Bible verse interpretation makes you feel better about pegging the husband, go for it. Now, don't mistake me. Easily 90% of the rest of Jill's blog posts, like 90% of the rest of Jill's family, is terrible. It includes things like saving yourself for marriage and that sex is only for married men and women and even then only when they're having sex with each other. But there was more decent-ish sex advice in Jill's controversial blog post than I expected to find. Jill got tons of grief from her readers and I just wanted to say, hey, Jill, I feel you. Game recognizes game. Haters gonna hate. Part of the sex advice racket. Welcome. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The Magnum, twice as long and no ads. Dr. Justin Lay Miller joins us to talk about kink. Are men as kinky as women? Are women as kinky as men? It's an angel debate, and there is new data. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan and everybody. 30-something lady calling from Canada. My question is, my mother-in-law just left after having spent almost a month with me and my partner in our tiny one-bedroom, no-doors apartment. So it went well, as well as it could have. Uh, We did our best to stay out of each other's space. I didn't have any freakouts. I think I deserve the Daughter-in-Law of the Year Award. My problem is, is that I feel like my partner and I, we should be like jumping on each other's bones and wanting to fuck our brains out, but I'm just like not into him. And I know it has to do with how it felt having his mother around because I just feel icky now. I guess maybe living with them and seeing him interact with her, it just makes me feel gross. There wasn't any sex happening while she was here because him and I, we have very opposite schedules. Every moment that we were like uh, around at the same time was spent with the mother-in-law and we couldn't really leave her on her own. She doesn't speak any language that we speak here and she was kind of lost. So I'm just wondering if it's normal to, after see your partner interact with their parent, to suddenly feel little grossed out by them normal what is normal that is a word we we try to avoid but if it were typical that when someone spends time with their mother-in-law or the father-in-law they lose all desire for their partner we would never be introduced to our in-laws if that was something that was a known known if that was a risk that people were conscious of Yeah, you might meet the mother-in-law at the wedding and then you would never ever see the mother-in-law ever again for fear of exploding or destroying your sexual relationship. So yeah, I don't think this is normal. I think this is particular to your circumstance and these interactions you had with his mother. Sounds like she came for a very long time. Sounds like her. you say you weren't having sex while she was there. So I infer from that that you have a good sexual connection with your husband when his mother isn't in your no-bedroom walls, one-bedroom apartment with you for weeks and weeks and weeks. And mom's presence kind of blew the flame out. And perhaps, as you say, watching him interact with his mother brought up some uncomfortable parallels. You know, his intimacy with her reminded you on some level of your intimacy 
with him, the way you interact with him, perhaps on a day-to-day basis, the way you take care of him. Perhaps he has maneuvered you into a few places where he expects from you or wants from you the same kind of caretaking that he got from his mother and that kind of de-eroticized that daily interaction for you in some way that's sabotaging your sexual connection. And in the end, you're going to have to do what I tell so many people to do. You're going to have to talk to your partner about this. You're going to have to take Taylor Swift's advice and agree together somehow to shake this off. You got knocked out of your usual sexual groove by his mother's presence. Something about their interactions squicked you out because they resembled in some way your interactions, your intimacy, and you need to blot that out. You need to not dwell on it or think about it. And I think sex might be a good way to blot that out, a sexual connection and a good and lasting and hopefully powerful one is something that distinguishes your relationship with your husband, I hope, from his relationship with his mother. And getting back on that horse, even if you have to will it at first, even if you have to lean in, as they say, at first, to being intimate with your husband, to being sexual with your husband, you should do it. Because reasserting that, reestablishing that, even having, you know, not to do anything that you don't want to do, blah, 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 but even having to force it at first, to throw yourself into it and go through the motions in hope of not catching a groove with your husband, but reestablishing the groove that you had with your husband. I think that would be smart. And the place to start is a convo with your husband where your feelings of squickiness can be acknowledged the oppressiveness of his mother's presence for such a long time and, and how damaging that was to your sexual connection and how it stopped it for a while can be acknowledged. I think it would be helpful to have those feelings affirmed by him and then God have a half a bottle of wine each or get fucking stoned, get naked and throw yourselves at each other, grind up against each other until you are not thinking about mom anymore and your space is now your space again the space where you have sex with your husband not the space where you have to look after or help him take care of his mother or with his mother look after and take care of him hey dan i'm a straight female living on the east coast i'm dating a man 19 years older than me i'm 26 and he's 45 uh, what started as a one-night stand led to us hanging out more and eventually seriously dating as boyfriend and girlfriend in a monogamous relationship. We've been together for nine months now. He's never been married and doesn't have kids. I was very clear in the beginning of the relationship that I'm not really interested in marriage anytime soon and definitely no kids, at least for another eight years, as my focus right now is on my career and traveling. He said it was okay and for me to not worry about it and that it was on him. We got past that issue and the issue of our age difference since I'm the youngest person he's ever dated and he's the oldest person I've ever dated. We actually have a lot in common despite our age cap. A few weeks ago, after a great date night, we started to get intimate and then he stopped. I asked him what was wrong and kind of had to pry it out of him. I told him, you know, at the end of the day, we're friends. He was hesitant to tell me, but he said, it's not you. I'm extremely attracted to you. I just have a lot going on in my head. 
He meets with a lot of clients and patients for his job and the whole, are you married and how many kids do you have gets brought up a lot. And we also do live in the South. And this has been getting to him. It also doesn't help that his birthday is coming up and he's not excited about getting older. He tells me those questions have never bothered him before until now. And he never went out of his way to not get married and not have kids. His life just kind of panned out to be that way. Is he kind of going through a midlife crisis? I know that he's always wanted kids. I've completely fallen for this man, but I still stand by what I want. Do I leave him in the relationship now before we get even deeper and it hurts even more to leave? He's a very successful and attractive man, so I know he won't have any trouble finding a woman who does want to get married and have kids within a year or two. I'm just conflicted and I'm not sure of what the right thing to do is. And I can't help but feel a little bit guilty about it. He's a grown-up. He's 44 years old. He's going to be 45 soon. If he wants to be with you, you can let him make that choice. You can let him choose to be with you. He can be honest about what that means, what he may be giving up or losing by choosing to be with you. Acknowledging his grief acknowledging his booming seemingly biological clock or his midlife crisis or his regrets doesn't mean that you have to fix them. Doesn't mean that you have to change your timeline. Doesn't mean that you have to marry before you wish to marry or have kids before you wish to have kids. But if you want to be with him, you're going to have to say, yeah, I get it. You're a little sad because we're a little off. We're not a perfect match around what you want versus what I want. Maybe I'm going to want the things you want eventually, but I don't want them right now. And then he has to decide whether he's willing to wait. You put the figure at eight years, whether he's willing to wait until he is 53 before he marries and has nine months later, his first kid. And while he contemplates his willingness to wait, I think you have to ask yourself, is there any room for compromise here? Are you willing to shave a couple of years off that eight year figure? Are you willing to compromise and, you know, when you're 30, marry or have kids? Not when you're 25 years old and certainly not marrying and going after kids when you've only been dating this guy who's anxious to marry someone and have kids with someone for nine months. At nine months, you barely know each other. At nine months, you're not farting in front of each other, which for me is the gold standard around how well you know each other. So it could be that in a month or two, this relationship, like most relationships, will have run its course and all of this marriage and kids agitas will be moot. Red flag zone, though, Look, let's go visit the May Day Parade for just a second. There's something a little hustly and rushy about a 44-year-old man saying to a 25-year-old that he just started dating nine months ago that he has this big sad about marriage and kids, marriage and kids, marriage and kids, being rushed into a premature commitment. And there's no commitment quite as massive as scrambling your DNA together, not saying he's an abuser, but it can be the early red flag that lets you know someone is a abuser. It can also be a false flag. Sometimes people are with somebody for six months, nine months, and they know this is on, on some fundamental level, the person they want to be with for the rest of their life. And then they make a lifetime commitment and Yahtzee, it turns out through luck that this person is actually the person that they could be with for the rest of their life or one of the people they could be with for the rest of their life. There is no, the one, there's only lots of 0.75s so that you round the fuck up to one. So to cross the streams here a little bit, 
Is he willing to wait? Can you acknowledge that he's making a sacrifice by waiting for you? Are you willing to compromise on that eight-year figure and dial it back to five years? And if then you are together five years from now, when you're 30 and you're still together, perhaps an engagement, perhaps then a marriage, perhaps then sometime after that, kids a little sooner than you wanted to have them, a little longer than he wanted to wait. Those are the kinds of compromises that make long-term relationships go. But I would ask him to table all further discussion of marriage and kids and sadness about marriage and kids until after you've been together a year, which means closing your mouths about these issues and these topics and spending the next 12 short weeks just getting to know each other better. Because after a year, you'll both have a better idea about whether you're someone he's willing to wait for and he's someone you're willing to compromise for. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old queer woman. I have been with my partner, who is a transmasculine gender queer person, for three years. And this call is not about the relationship. Uh, it's a great relationship. We're getting married next year. It's actually a call about a friendship issue. As I said, we're getting married next year, and we have these queer friends who we consider really close friends. So it's my fiance's, one of his best friends, and her partner. We had asked the partner who is an ordained minister and has values that really closely align with ours to be our officiant for our wedding next year. And at first he was really excited and he met with us and everything. It's been a little bit of time now. We haven't heard that much. And um, my fiance today just got a text that not only can he not officiate the wedding, but he can't come. The text was something like he has to present some report at a conference and this like report is really important to him and this conference is really important to him. But I, both of us still feel really hurt. It almost feels like a relationship ending move on his part. I don't know. I don't want to be like overreacting or anything, but now I feel like if he's just like not going to, this is like a close friend who's was going to be our officiant. And now he just said he's not even coming. So like, I don't want him to come to my birthday. Like I don't even want to see his face again. <sighs> anyway. So we had, Another incident with the same couple last year where I had planned a 40th birthday party for my fiance and I had planned it like six months in advance. Everybody, I had checked with them over and over again if they were going to come. And then about a week before, they let me know that they maybe were only going to come for the day because they needed time together and they needed, they needed to house it for somebody. And I was like, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm not averse to having hard conversations with people. I had a conversation with them at that time. I used my words. I was like, this is a very special occasion. Please, can you, like, prioritize him for just this weekend because he's only turning 41. I'm wondering, like, do you think that this couple is kind of just telling us in so many words that they don't think of us as close friends anymore and I should just, like, deal with that? Or do you think I'm overreacting and it's fine because he gave us so, so much advance notice? Um, I'd just love to hear what you have to say. I suppose you could have a knockdown, drag out argument or conversation, confrontation with your friends about their clearly differing attitude toward their friends, their other friends, milestone life events like 40th birthday parties, like weddings. Or if you want to keep them in your life, you could adjust your expectations, expect less from them, less of them, and as a result, be less disappointed by them going forward. 
friendship isn't just showing up for weddings and showing up for 40th birthday parties. A lot of people show up for milestone birthday parties. There's a crowd. A lot of people show up for weddings. There's a crowd. Also, you know, the dates that people schedule their weddings for, other people still have lives, still have commitments, still have high stakes professional commitments that can be crucial to their long-term career prospects. And if that conflicts with a wedding, uh, that wedding may put someone in a position where they have to choose their own long-term self-interest over their friends arbitrarily scheduled because that's when they could get the barn in the countryside wedding as painful as that is for engaged or about to be married people to sometimes hear or process because we want our friends there at that big event. We want our friends to be there for us. But before you chuck these two, you know, out of the canoe, I think you should ask yourself, are they there for you in the day to day? Are they there for you when there isn't a crowd? Have they come through for you again and again and again, even if they whiffed that 40th birthday party by deprioritizing it? And even if then, and you know, two things isn't a trend piece, but then they also whiffed or weren't able to make your wedding. Maybe you have a conversation with them about what is this conference? What is this paper? And how important is it to your friend to present and how consequential it could be for your friend professionally if the paper is a huge success or if, you know, how consequential it could be in a negative sense if they're not there to present. And if that's a big day for them and it conflicts with your big day, you may have to have a bottle of champagne with your other friends sometime, just the four of you to, to, to celebrate your wedding privately. And they may not be able to be your officiant. All that said, if there is another occurrence like this, if there is, you know, if you and your partner decide to have children and there's, you know, a christening or a baby shower or a bris or whatever, and your friends can't make that either, they may be sending you a message that they are dialing back this friendship. And although you are still important to them and they still feel great affection for you and love for you, they're deprioritizing this relationship because sometimes people have to do that. And people don't do that directly. People don't say, hey, we have a lot on our plate right now and we don't have as much time or space for this friendship anymore. Let's stay in touch, but uh, not going to be able to be here, there, everywhere for you like we used to be. Sorry, people don't say that. They just gradually make themselves less available. And when people make themselves less available to you, you can get angry, you can confront them, or you can make yourself for this time, this stage of your lives less available to them, which is about adjusting your expectations. So then you are not disappointed. And then when they do show up or when they do pop into your text messages or you run into them, you can catch up and you won't feel so angry because again, you were expecting less and you know, that sucks, but that happens. If you don't torch the friendship because a friend isn't as available to you now as they were before. Who knows what's going to happen in two, three, five, ten years. You all may wind up back in the same part of the country. You all may wind up having more time and space in your lives. And your friendship may resume, may pick up and revive and grow stronger. Friends can only circle back and reconnect and, and revive the friendship if they didn't burn it down in anger during that stage of their lives where circumstance and other life pressures pulled them apart. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-something married woman in America. Um, my question for you is about my relationship with my parents. 
I have basically not had any contact with them after this last election. They are still hardcore Trump fanatics, climate change deniers, you know, and, you know, guns, guns, guns. Um, and I just felt that I did not want to have that toxicity in my life, especially considering my husband is an immigrant. I have a daughter um, and they're just not helping the world getting any, any better. So my question is, my father was recently diagnosed with cancer and he is going to have surgery and, you know, they're going to he's going to go through a cancer treatment plan. My sister and my aunt are the ones that told me about this. My parents did not reach out to me. They did not tell me that this was going on. Um, I obviously don't wish any harm on my parents. I just don't want them in my life because I think that their views and their opinions are just so toxic and just awful. So am I an asshole? Am I awful for not contacting my parents and trying to reconcile now that my father has cancer? Should I call him and say, I'm really sorry for your cancer, but I still don't want you in my life because your views suck and are detrimental to the actual existence of my family? What do I do? Am I an asshole? Sending a card or sending an email does not equal shitty mom and dad, toxic mom and dad back in your life. You can send a card. You can send an email that really comes to a conclusion that doesn't invite a dialogue that isn't about inviting your parents back into your life. That isn't about inserting yourself back into their lives. You can just send an acknowledgement. I'm sorry to hear that you're facing this health crisis. You are in my thoughts, period. Do it not for your shitty dad. Do it not for your shitty mom. Do it for yourself and do it. I got to say, do it for your aunt and do it for your sister because those are people potentially, you don't say that they're Trump supporters. I think you would have mentioned that if they were, they're people you want to have a relationship with now while your parents are still here. So in service of those relationships, sister, aunt, be the bigger person, be the person that your parents have failed to be the person who can see someone else's humanity despite their differences. Doesn't mean you have to be there. Doesn't mean you have to visit. Doesn't mean you have to send flowers. Doesn't mean you have to get on the phone and chat every day while dad's getting chemotherapy or whatever for four hours in that chair. Just a card, just an email. And uh, you are in my thoughts, which is true. They are in your thoughts. You called because your parents are in your thoughts. You don't have to share with your parents every single thing you think about them. So you are in my thoughts can mean two things. I'm thinking you're an asshole. I'm hoping you can't find your mail-in ballot if you live in a mail-in state or can't find your way to the ballot box if you don't come next November. Also thinking, ah, you have cancer. That's too bad. And I hope that you are well and on your feet soon, period. You may hear back from them. You may not. If you hear back from them, you're not obligated to respond. You're not obligated to engage, particularly if you have the kind of shitty conservative Trump parents, Trump families who pull their liberal relatives and progressive relatives into conversation because they feel free to blow up at us in ways that we don't blow up at them. Yeah, you don't have to get into a back and forth, even if they attempt to initiate one after that first contact. And again, I promise you, you will feel better about not them, not their political beliefs, not their attitudes, not the asshole orange Julius Caesar that they put in the White House. You will feel better about yourself for having sent that card or that email. And it diffuses what could be a ticking time bomb 
in your relationship with your sister and your aunt. If you don't reach out, if you don't express sympathy now, that may blow up your relationships, relationships I think you value, with them later. A small thing to do, again, not for your parents, for yourself and for your relationship with your sister and your aunt. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I'm a 42-year-old woman married to a male partner together for 13 years with a 9-year-old daughter. I'm calling about open relationships and when and how to explain this to your children. My husband and I opened up our marriage about six years ago because we were no longer sexually satisfied with each other. However, we still love each other and we had a young child, so we didn't want to break up our family when we knew we could find sexual fulfillment with outside partners, which we have, and that's all been going fine. So given that background, I have two questions. First, it's really important to me that my daughter doesn't grow up believing that monogamy is the ideal. You and others, such as Esther Perel, have often talked about how nearly impossible it is for one person to successfully fulfill all the roles of lover, best friend, co-parent, etc. I would like for my daughter to understand this too, not necessarily now as she's still kind of young, but certainly when she gets older. So when I start to talk about this with her, should I tell her that her parents have an open marriage? I would like for her to know the truth about our relationship, but I don't know when is the best time for her to know that. It seems like there are pros and cons no matter when you do it. I definitely don't want to traumatize her or give her TMI by telling her too young, but I also don't want her to feel that she was lied to or misled if I wait until she's an older teenager or adult. I was wondering if you would be willing to share when you and Terry discuss this with your son, or if that's too personal, what your general advice would be, or if your listeners would be willing to share their experiences. My second question pertains to the details of me and my husband's outside relationships. My husband has had several flings and short-term relationships with outside partners. I have had the same outside partner for about five years. This man is also married and has three teenage and young adult children, but his marriage is not open. He's been with his wife for 30 years, and while he still loves her and also prioritizes keeping his family together, he's basically in a, quote, do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane situation, since his wife has not been interested in sex for many years. So whenever my husband and I do disclose the nature of our marriage to our daughter, I'm sure she will have a lot of questions about who our other partners are. And so what do I tell her? Part of me wants to be honest, but part of me does not want her to know that her mom is in a relationship with a man who was cheating on his wife. I know this is a totally selfish question as I am pretty much a piece of shit on this one, but I would love to hear your feedback about this too. Hey, you are not a piece of shit. You are not a cheating piece of shit. (laughs) You know, when when someone is in a long-term relationship or a marriage and it's, you know, sexless now and has to do what he has to do to stay married and stay sane for the greater good of both people in that marriage, the person he's fucking is an angel of pussy mercy, not a bad person. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. So climb down off that cross first. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I do feel bad about it, but at the same time. Yeah. Like you said, it, 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 you know, it's helped me listen to, to you talk about things like, you know, things that people have to do to stay married and stay sane. And that's, that's definitely his position. So. Life is complicated and relationships are complicated. And, you know, if you could put his wife under truth serum and, you know, she wasn't going to remember the conversation and say, OK, he's having sex with someone else. Would you want to know about it or would you rather be allowed to continue to live in ignorance 
um, and, you know, the security of, you know, how discreet he's being, she'd probably choose the ignorance. You know, it would be great if we lived in a world where everybody who had to have sex outside their relationship could have like an open, honest, ethical, non-monogamous relationship like you and your husband do. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. not always possible. There are, right. you know, examples I could give and I've given and, you know, we've gotten calls from lots of people who are just in circumstances where cheating is the least worst option. And so they cheat and it's for the benefit of both or all. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my rant. Now, now that's not what you called about. Uh, you called about how to roll this out with your nine-year-old and right. man, that's a, that's a delicate issue because you know, nine, 10, 11, 12, you don't even want to think about your parents having sex with each other. Exactly. And you know, there's social monogamy and sexual monogamy. And I think there are many, 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 many people out there who are socially monogamous. They're perceived to be monogamous. They allow themselves to be perceived to be monogamous by their neighbors, their coworkers, their parents, their friends, their children who are not sexually monogamous. And their coworkers, friends, parents, children don't necessarily need to know that. I think the danger with kids, though, is that relationship, you know, your nine-year-old is living in your house with you. It's so intimate and kids hear things and they see things. And sometimes you don't know what they've heard and you don't know what they've seen. And and my concern is always a kid being put in a position where they think mom is cheating on dad or dad is cheating on mom. And they have to keep this secret to protect their family, to protect their mom or protect their dad, or that this is a weapon that they've been handed you know, if they have a turbulent adolescence, you know, uh, uh, something they can wield against mom and dad. Right. My my daughter, she, you know, she's nine and she will see me on my phone and she has seen his name. She has seen his picture. She's asked me who he is. Mm-hmm. I always tell her he's just a friend, but, but she's already in tune. Like she kind of knows like something is up. She used to refer to him as my boyfriend and okay. she, she wasn't wrong, but, but I just felt like she was, too, she was too young for me to explain this to her now. I just don't know. If when she's older, if, if I should, especially considering, as I mentioned in my call, like, I don't want her to grow up thinking that monogamy is like the perfection or the ideal and that's what she should be striving for because that's just not realistic and her parents are a living example of that. So, so that's right. kind of my, my struggle. Well, there are lots of kids out there who grow up in out poly families and studies have shown that these kids are no worse adjusted, no worse off, uh, no more emotionally vulnerable. Uh, or damaged than kids who grow up in, you know, houses where the parents are or appear to be monogamous. So you're not endangering your child by coming out to your kid about being, you know, open. I sometimes that you have to ask yourself, you know, is this going to be a burden for the child to know? Do your parents know? Do the neighbors know? If you bring your child in, are you bringing them into the closet with you? And burdening them with helping to keep this secret, not from you or from your husband, but from the world. And allowing your kid to sort of coast on in a zone of plausible deniability until they're a little bit older, which is what Terry and I chose to do, which I'm not going to get into because my kid does not like me to talk about him on my dirty sex and relationship advice podcast. (laughs) Uh, I think can be preferable if you're not out to your parents, if you're not out to your family, if it's not something the neighbors could never know, if it's something that could explode your lives, if your daughter let it slip to someone else and then the gossip went around, mm-hmm. you know? Okay, yeah. You know, if, yeah. 
if she confides in someone and it gets out and, and, and comes back to harm you guys, harm your family, she then has to live with that guilt and would probably right. rather not have known when she was nine or ten. Right, right. But, but but like this is just this balancing act with this 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 is a dilemma. You know, if if she's overheard something and she thinks one of you is cheating on the other and that her whole family is a lie and that when you guys say I love you to each other, you don't mean it, that can be incredibly destabilizing. So, you know, if she's if she said, you know, that this person you text with, if she's called him in a winking way your boyfriend, she may be asking to be told because she's concerned. Mhm about what he means and what he means is in no way a threat to her family, in no way a threat to your relationship with her dad or your marriage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she may need to know that, but then like all those other risks have to be, be factored in and it would be easier to tell you what to do if you and I both knew what she knew, but we don't. Right. 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 I mean, the, the good, the other good thing is that the openness of my relationship with my husband isn't a secret. I mean, we don't like flare it out to, every single person, but, but many people, like our close friends know, mm-hmm. you know, I have some coworkers who know, some of his coworkers know, our parents do not know, and our close relatives do not know, but like in, in the rest of our circles, it's not a secret. So if she were to say something to someone, oh, my mom has a boyfriend, like that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't, that, that wouldn't cause, you know, like a fire. Well, what would, would it cause a fire if she said to your mom? To grandma? That, 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 would, that, that would be a little different. <laughs> but, but then, but then, we'd have, then we have been, my husband and I could deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> Grandma, grandma's getting old and, you know, that, that we, we, could, we could handle that. Or we could tell her this is, this is not something that grandma needs to know or something. But, but, but it's not like a deep, dark secret that no one else knows about. My husband and I are pretty open and out about uh, our know, situation. As you should be. And it sounds like yours is one of those examples of the kinds of relationships I talk about and sometimes feel like no one else ever wants to talk about or acknowledge where openness and outside sex saved the marriage as opposed to destroyed mm-hmm. the marriage. Right. And, and it's made it possible for you guys to stay together and to love each other and to be good parents together under one roof. So it's a success story. All that said, you can allow your daughter if you, you feel it's best, and you guys are going to have to make this judgment call together um, to continue to assume you're monogamous, but also to dis- you can discuss, you know, at a family dinner, all the different forms that relationships take, and some are exclusive, some are not. You know, polyamory is a thing that exists. You know, sometimes the parents of queer kids want to know what they can do for their kids, and you know, looking right at a ten year old who you know, has given every signal that they're going to be lesbian or gay when they grow up and saying, look, I know you're lesbian or gay. Let's talk about that. That puts the kid on a spot in a way that makes the kid uncomfortable and shuts down the conversation. But talking in the same room while that kid listens with a gay friend about gay shit or, you know, having, you know, it's not hard to get onto the subject of all the different forms that relationships take with a worldly wise nine-year-old. Uh, mm-hmm. But it can be better to have that be something that's being bandied about the room by adults to give them a, a, a peek into the wider world rather than having to directly address it with mom. All that said, you know what? The fact that she's calling the, the dude on the phone, your boyfriend, that's just weighing on me. I think that's a sign that she's asking to be told the truth because she already kind of grokked it. Yeah, she, she, she unfortunately saw a couple of like 
heart and kiss emojis. And so I think that's what prompted uh, her to say that. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to like walk yeah. back a whole bunch of the things I've just said <laughs> and tell you, you're probably going to have to sit her down and have a conversation about how complicated adult lives actually are, but how, but how joyful they are. You don't have to tell her, you don't have to give her any more information about your boyfriend. You don't have to tell her that your boyfriend has a wife and he's doing what he has to do to stay married and stay sane. That's like, you know, advanced, you know, calculus and right. give her algebra first before college <laughs> level ask. math. That's the thing I know, but that she's so inquisitive. She's so curious. She will ask, she, she will point blank ask me, who is he? He's and just, if I say I don't want to tell you, no, no, no you can or, tell you I, can I, I, you can tell her about him without telling her about his circumstance. He's this lovely person. True. I see him on you know these times, and mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. you know th- th- he works here, he does this, he does that, he has a, a, a life of his own, and doesn't is not interested in being with me as his primary partner, nor am I interested in being with him as my primary partner. So it's a perfect uh, arrangement. But she doesn't get to depose you or depose him. Right. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Good luck. That makes sense. Thank you so much for calling me back and for your words of wisdom. I really, really appreciate it. Bye. Hi, Dan. It's Tech Savvy at Rescue. I'm a 30 year old gay cis woman from Toronto, and I'm currently having some issues with how to approach a friend of mine. My friend, a straight woman, was recently dumped by her boyfriend of two years, and she is understandably heartbroken. She wants to get back together with him. And this has become the topic of every conversation we have. She feels he is being unfair to her by not wanting to work through their problems and try again. The thing is, she never really seemed to be very kind to her boyfriend. For example, if we were out to dinner, she would say things to put him down. Sometimes she would ridicule him for his interests and hobbies in front of other people. If we were out at a bar late at night and she asked him to stay over, and for whatever reason he wasn't able to, she would blow up and storm off and say that they should break up because he didn't prioritize her. This seemed to be a pattern of behavior for her. I believe she acted similarly in past relationships as well, although, honestly, I can't be sure. I've spoken to her about this on numerous occasions, and as kindly as I could, I told her that if she kept acting in these erratic ways, her boyfriend would likely leave. I've also warned her that if he were to leave, she would likely regret her behavior, because she has always maintained that she loves him. Everyone close to this couple could see the writing on the wall but I don't believe that my friend ever truly thought her boyfriend would leave her. Her now ex-boyfriend has become a good friend of mine because we work together. I absolutely believe he made the right decision for himself, and I completely support him in that decision. My question is, how can I be a good friend in this situation? I feel badly that my friend is heartbroken, but I also feel like she was the architect of her own breakup. And I feel like maybe she doesn't have the right to be playing the victim in this situation. What do I do, Dan? So if I had a friend who was lovely to me and we had a good time whenever we hung out together and they seemed, you know, everything that you wanted from a friend, engaging, funny, charming, supportive when you have an issue or you want to talk something out. But then I went over to their house and they had a dog. And every time I went over to their house, they were kicking their dog and being horrible to their dog and torturing their dog and abusing their dog. I wouldn't want to be that person's friend anymore. It would make me question who I thought they were watching this person that I thought I liked be so shitty to this other sentient being. 
your friend, you're worried about this friendship with this person who was kind of kicking a dog, who's a terrible girlfriend, who was cruel and belittling, demeaning, uh, and treated with contempt this boyfriend of hers who is now your friend as well. Pick a friend. If I had to choose between these two people, if I had to run the risk of losing the friendship of one of these two people, I think the person I'd run the risk of losing the friendship of would be obvious. Go to your friend, the girl, who is so awful to this guy and say, look, you were a dick and he broke up with you for good reason and he is better off without you and you do not need him back you need a therapist. You need to work through your relationship issues with someone because if this is the way you treat anyone you ever are with romantically and sexually, you will get dumped and deserve to get dumped over and over and over again. I watched this play out. I think, and I'm saying this as your friend, he made the right decision dumping you and as his friend, I would not encourage him to take you back. That might terminate your friendship with her. And that might be for the best. Do you really want to hang out with this boyfriend kicker, this dog kicker for the rest of your life? And listen to her whine and complain? She was the author, not just of her misery. She was the author of his misery. He got out. Good for him. The only way to address her misery post this relationship is to get her fucking ass onto a therapist's couch and work on this. Be her friend. Lay that out for her. Light into her. You may lose her friendship. So the fuck what? Or she may actually get her ass onto that therapist's couch. And in a year or a couple of years, be a better person. And then when she's in a relationship again with someone else, you won't have to watch these same patterns repeat themselves. And you won't feel complicit if these patterns repeat themselves because you said your piece. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I have a question about kink. I was recently talking with a family member and stated that I believe that kink is randomly equally distributed amongst people of all genders. He said he believes that there are more kinky men than kinky women. I told him he probably has that perception because of the sex negative culture that tells women not to have sexual desires and tries to silence women about anything that might be considered out of the norm. And I was wondering if you had found any research about that or if there's anywhere you could direct me to look to try and find an answer. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Justin Lay Miller, social psychologist, research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and author of the blog Sex and Psychology. His latest book, which he's been on the show before to discuss, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help Improve Your Sex Life. Hey, Justin, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, thanks for coming back. So it's a pretty simple question. Kink, randomly and equally distributed among all genders, or are men likelier to be kinky? So I, I don't know that I would say randomly and evenly distributed, um, but I do think we're you know kind of all kinky regardless of gender. Um, it's interesting when you kind of look at the history of kink and psychology, 
researchers for a long time thought that men were the much kinkier sex, right? Because if you look at the DSM and all the things that have been categorized as paraphilias over the years, paraphilias being you know, any kind of unusual or uncommon sexual interest, it was almost always men who were categorized as having them, whether it was sadism, voyeurism, exhibitionism, fetishism. Um, but more recently, I think we've come around and seen that regardless of gender, we're all pretty kinky. There is a lot of anecdotal evidence that people kind of perhaps misinterpret. I believe I misinterpreted it in the past. You know, back in the day when Craigslist had personals, you'd look at the personals and for every one post from a woman who was kinky, there would be a hundred from men. There's obviously sort of a supply and demand imbalance in the, you know, fetish professional world. There's a lot of professional uh, female dominance, not a lot of professional male dominance seeing female clients. And we kind of inferred from that anecdotal evidence that men were likelier to be kinky. Is it just that men were likelier to feel, feel entitled to act on their desires and their kinks or safer to act on them than women and therefore men were overrepresented in kink personals and professional dungeons? You know, that might be part of it. I, I think if we back up for a second and we look at sexual fantasies about various kinks, you know, men and women both score very high on things like BDSM fantasies. So there's not really a big gender difference there. And actually, when you look at, you know, fantasies about the bondage and masochism, women actually fantasize about that stuff more than men do. Uh, so, so men and women are both pretty kinky. But in terms of why we sort of see this expressed more publicly by men, I think there's two explanations. One is that that sort of gendered explanation that you mentioned where, um, you know, maybe men are freer to uh, act on and express those sexual desires in women. Um, but the other explanation is that there's a lot of research in psychology suggesting that men are much more likely to develop a very fixed kinky desire than our women, right? Where they become totally fixated on something and that's the only thing that gets them off. Whereas women's sexuality is seen as a bit more flexible and fluid. And so they're a lot less likely to, um, you know, become fixated on just one specific thing that gets them off. And that's that the difference between a kink and a fetish, you know, not to get pedantic. You know, a kink is kind of maybe a theme. A fetish is often an object. Like you, you hear about, or I've met men who are, uh, as a fetish, rubber swim caps and own hundreds of them, collect them, collect photos of women in them. And you don't meet many women who are as obsessed or, or become as obsessed about an object as opposed to, you know, I think for a lot of women when it comes to BDSM, it's a theme. It's a, it, it's a theater of kink as opposed to there is, you know, one kind of pair of shoes or, or, or a rubber swim cap or opera length gloves or something or smoking or cigarettes that men are, seem more prone to become, like you said, obsessed about that one thing and require that one thing in order to get off. And women aren't as, so, aren't as, I don't want to say vulnerable to that. Women aren't as prone to that same dynamic. Yeah. It, it's not to say that women can't get off on swim caps. They can, uh, just that, you know, they're less likely to become fixated on that is the one thing that does it for them. And in terms of, you know, why is that the case? Uh, you know, there are different schools of thought on this. You know, one theory is sort of that, you know, men and women have different imprinting windows in their sexual development in terms of when their sexual interests uh, start to take root or take hold. And uh, some researchers think that, you know, men have a, a narrower window and this happens earlier in life. And that's why a lot of guys with fetishes and kinks can can really tie those interests back to a very specific early 
childhood or early adolescent experience where um, that's less common, uh, say, for women. So, you know, we don't know exactly why this is, but, you know, men just do seem to become much more fixated on uh, certain sexual objects than, than women do. But to sum up, everybody's a kinky pervert. And there do seem to be some general differences in the way people's kinky perviness may be expressed based on gender. But it doesn't mean that women aren't kinky or men are kinky or just there's some difference in expression there. But we're all pervs. Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, the key take home message is really that it's normal to be kinky, right? We're, we're all turned on by a variety of, of different things. And both men and women have kinky sexual fantasies and desires and so forth. Uh, so, um, you know, what, what would be unusual would be if you were only turned on by, uh, you know, what is considered to be mainstream and, and vanilla and, you know, you're only turned on by missionary style intercourse on Thursday nights with your, you know, spouse after watching the news, you know, that would be unusual. Freakish. Freakish. Yeah. Freaks. <laughs> Dr. Justin Lane Miller, author of Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help Improve Your Sex Life. Check out his invaluable and informative blog, Sex and Psychology. Dr. Lane Miller, thank you again. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Uh, so my ex-boyfriend and I, we were together for two years, uh, and we broke up two months ago. It was a very mutual breakup. We were friends before, and I think we realized we were better off as friends. The thing is, we rock climb together. So we rock climb indoors during the week and then outdoors pretty much every weekend. And so because of that, and because we were always friends, we just kind of went back to being friends. So we still spend a lot of time together. And like we're pretty much putting our lives in each other's hands pretty often. So yeah, very good that we're still friends. Um, however, I've um, started seeing someone else. We actually started seeing each other pretty quickly after my ex and I broke up. I think because we knew we were better off as friends, we just sort of delayed the breakup for a while. I kind of met someone else. It's qu quickened the pace of the breakup when I met this other person who was a friend and then asked me out. Um, so I'm dating someone else who's also a rock climber, but he lives about two hours away. So I see my ex more often than I see this current partner. However, on the weekends, I normally drive up to where my current partner is because he lives where we rock climb. And I either climb with him or my ex, depending on who's working and when. So far, I've kind of kept them apart. It's like Saturday with one person, Sunday with another. It's getting to me a bit. I'm not too sure if I should introduce them. They did meet once briefly before my ex and I broke up. The rock climbing community is quite small. My ex does know that I'm dating someone else. He seems okay with it. He wouldn't tell me if he was. That was one of the reasons why we broke up is he does not talk about his feelings at all. Um, my new partner is fine with me climbing with my ex. Like it's a pretty good situation, but I just don't know when or how if I should introduce them or get them to hang out. Is two months too soon? Like it's a small community. I feel like they're going to run into each other. I've got a friend's going away party who also rock climbs up in the mountains and they'll both likely be there. Is that the time to introduce them? I don't, I don't know. Should I get them to climb together without me, with me? I don't know if to ask my ex if this is okay. 
Uh, just, all right, all right, all right. We, we had to to, to to fade you out there. The answer is simple. These guys, your ex, the guy you're currently seeing, they're big boys. They're big rock climbing boys. And you are wringing your hands and stressing out about when and whether they should meet each other and how that would – ask them. Ask your boyfriend if he feels uncomfortable hanging out with your ex or when he might feel comfortable hanging out with your ex. Ask your ex. You know, I'm dating this guy now and – of course, because I'm dating him, I'm going to prioritize some spending more time with him. And I hope that's not awkward. And would it be awkward for you to meet him? It's only been a couple of months. The relationship started soon after your previous relationship ended. So it's probably a can that your ex at least is going to want to kick down the road a bit. But if circumstance outside of your control should throw them together in the same room because you all have mutual friends and there's a party and you're all going to be there – yeah, that's just potentially going to be awkward, but it's not your problem. You are not actually in the middle. This is their shit to navigate. And you need to stress out about it less. Check in with both of them about what they would be comfortable with. If it's you bringing them together, if you're going to engineer a meeting or a rock climbing adventure where your lives are all in each other's hands, which seems like a bad plan to me, but I'm a risk-averse person. But otherwise... Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Listen to what they have to say, how they feel. Roll it out at a pace they're both comfortable with. But stop torturing yourself about it. Hi, Dan. I was hoping you could uh, give me a little advice on something. I uh, just got off the phone with a nurse. I had a bit of a sex toy mishap. And she recommended as for uh, cleaning solutions that I clean my sex toy with a mix of bleach and water or put a condom on it. Uh, that sent up some blaring red flags for me. And I was hoping that maybe you or anybody could give me some information on that or better ways to be cleaning my sex toys other than icky, icky bleach or a condom. If you own a sex toy and you're not sure what it's made of and it might be porous, the material might be porous, the material itself might be toxic, it's not a bad idea to roll a condom over that if you're not certain about it. Otherwise, yeah, you don't need bleach. You don't bleach sex toys. Hot water and soap, dish soap, that's fine. Silicone sex toys, stainless steel sex toys, glass dildos and sex toys. You can run those through a dishwasher if you really want to sterilize them, if you really want to get them sparkling clean. But otherwise, just a little soap, just some hot water, wash them for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, let them dry. And if you're worried, you can wash them a second time, let them dry a second time. But yeah, no bleach. And again, not a terrible idea. To err on the side of safety with sex toys or dildos or butt plugs of unknown provenance. If you don't know what that's made of, if you don't know where it came from, whether it's porous, whether it's toxic materials, put a latex condom on it. It couldn't hurt. Hi, Dan. This is a straight female in her mid-20s. I have a question about accidental orgasms. So occasionally... I will wake up into having an orgasm and it's completely unpredictable. Um, and you may have covered this already, but I just want to know if anyone knows like why this happens. I mean, it's great. I'm not complaining at all, but I'm just like really curious. Like, are there 
people it's more likely to happen to based on certain characteristics. If anyone studied this, like, it's not like I was having like a sex dream or anything. I had, I had woken up from a dream about oversleeping into one of my finals in high school. So it's just completely out of the blue. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just really curious if anyone has studied this or knows more about why it happens or who it's more likely to happen to or when it's more likely to happen. Dr. Debbie Herbenick of Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute, frequent guest on this program, author of many books, including The Corgasm, Workout, Read My Lips, Great in Bed, Because It Feels Good. You should get, you should read all of Debbie Herbenick's books. Debbie has written about corgasms, which are basically exercise-induced orgasms where someone isn't seeking arousal or even necessarily feeling aroused, but they're body is having this physiological response to, you know, the contractions of certain sets of muscles. My guess after having read and talked to Debbie a bunch is that in your sleep, as you're having this dream that's non-sexual, you're tensing your legs, you're tensing your lower abdominal muscles and inducing this physiological arousal response. And then waking up to that thundering orgasm and sounds like a lovely way to wake up and not doing you any harm, pleasurable way to start the day. And if you want to read more about what's very likely going on with your crotch in the night when you're asleep, pick up The Corgasm Workout by Dr. Debbie Herbenick. Hi. I recently started dating uh, my partner probably about six months ago, and we're still in the full-on great new sex phase, and it's been awesome. However, my partner is very much turned turned on by anal, um, and I've done it a handful of times. It's certainly not something that I'm not willing to do, but it's also not something I really fantasize about um, regularly, but I do love how much he loves it. So I want to try and incorporate it more into our sex life since it is important to him and he really enjoys it. But the last couple, well, several times we've tried, it just got really messy and (laughs) he doesn't really seem to mind too much. We'll just, you know, take it to the shower or whatever. Um, But for me, it throws me off mentally and then I can't really get back into the swing of it because then I'm a little bit insecure about it. And so, I mean, we watch a lot of porn together and I see all these porn stars doing anal and they're always so clean. And I know that you always say porn's not <laughs> real life, but they're getting clean somehow. And I don't know if there's some kind of trick to it. I've tried just, you know, showering before and just making sure I like clean with my finger, but it doesn't seem to work. I'm just hoping to get some tips on how to make that experience a little bit less messy. Messes happen in porn. They edit it out of porn. But the thing that porn stars do before anal sex to decrease the likelihood of a mess having to be edited out of the film is they douche. It's not about showering the outside of your body or sticking a soapy finger in your rectum. It's about douching, anal douching. You get an anal douche bulb and you squirt a cup of warm water into your lower rectum and then you expel that water and then you do that again and you do it again and again and again until the water is coming out clean and then you're pretty much good to go and you're going to have a mess-free anal sex experience. Now, douching in advance does require some advanced prep and some people don't like that because it makes the sex feel less spontaneous. Well, there's a risk-benefit trade-off there. 
There's a benefit to that advanced preparation because there's less risk of there being a mess. If a mess is very upsetting or distracting to you and ruins sex for you, then you're going to want to do that advanced preparation and sacrifice the spontaneity that increases the likelihood that spontaneity of the mess happening. There is one other thing you can do if douching ain't for you, and that is to get a female condom. Sort of a trash can liner for your butt. It also works with vaginal intercourse. Basically, it's a condom that is inserted, and then the person with the dick, the bare dick, fucks the condom. Their dick goes in and out of the condom that's held in place by the orifice. And then if there's a mess in there, it's not going to get on his dick. It might be on the condom when you pull the condom out, but you can do that in privacy later. Hey, Dan, this is a 42-year-old woman in St. Louis. I married a man that I'd been friends with for a couple of years, you know, just through mutual friends. And we dated. We got married a couple of months after we started dating. And that was a fuck up on my part. But he seemed like a pretty stand-up guy. I mean, he worked hard. He'd been sober for two years. He apparently had a pretty... Uh, well-medicated psychiatric issue, but very, very shortly after we got married, he stopped taking any of his psychiatric medications, stopped following up with his doctor. Turns out what I thought was bipolar, he's actually paranoid schizophrenic and has a few other issues that definitely need to be managed with medication. And he was also drinking and doing whatever drugs I guess he'd get his hands on. He wound up going to go stay with his mother because she enables that behavior along with his 40-something-year-old brother that lives there who also has his behavior enabled by their mother. So basically, instead of being part of the marriage or working anything out, he ran away, got himself in some trouble, disturbed some peace, and had, I don't know, just some really stupid shit. Well, so now he's been sentenced and he's in prison and I'm getting the jailhouse love letters that, you know, we should work everything out and we'll like come visit and all this and that. Well, I don't want to. I'm saving up the money to get a divorce. Do I reply to his letters kindly and give him some kind of support while I'm waiting for the divorce to go through? Or do I tell him fuck you. I'm filing for divorce. I hope you get served in prison and it kills you, you dumb son of a bitch. I don't mean that. Yeah, I do kind of. That's it. What do you think? Of course you should be kind. Don't tell him to fuck off. Just very straight, very flat. Tell him the truth. You won't be visiting. You are going to be filing for divorce. You're not interested in resuming the relationship once he gets out of prison. Telling him the truth is kind. Telling him the truth in a flat and affectless way is also kind. And I would tell him now, if I were you, don't delay. Because now, while he's in prison, he can process that news, process that sad and upsetting news without showing up on your front porch to process that sad and upsetting news. And yeah, of, of course you should be kind. Nobody asks to have severe and challenging mental illnesses. We all get to decide what we can bear in our own lives. And if you can't be married to or partnered with someone who faces these challenges, you are allowed to tap out, but you don't have to flip them off on your way out. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old male straight guy, and I am recently single, broke up with my girlfriend of two years, pretty negative person. But, you know, I've been looking 
I've been kind of flirting around the office, but I never know the appropriate way to approach a woman in the office. I never want to do it in any creepy way or anything like that, but there are definitely some girls that I definitely want to ask out, uh, but I don't know the right way to do it uh, because it is in the workplace and you don't want to step over that line, but at the same time, you definitely do uh, want to take that chance with a girl. What do you think is the best approach to ask a girl out in the workplace? According to some research done at Stanford about how couples come together, how they meet, the percentage of straight couples, opposite sex couples who met at work has fallen from 20% of all couples in the 90s to a little more than 10% now. And the percentage of couples who met online has risen in 1990 from nearly 0% to today almost 40%. So the way people meet now online, some of the women in your office that you might be attracted to highly likely to be on Tinder where you can swipe and they can swipe. And if you're a match, Tinder will do the ask for you. Technology. It can be your friend. Technology. It can save your job. That said, I do feel a little bad right now for straight people. Women typically don't ask men out. That's something that men are supposed to do. Work brings a lot of people together who might be attracted to each other. This figure that 10% of couples met at work, that doesn't encompass all the people who briefly coupled consensually with someone that they met at work. These are people who are in established ongoing couples who are rounded up in this particular stat. So people do meet at work and people are attracted to people that work throws them together with. The problem in the workplace for women historically has been that it's a shitty hunting ground where men feel entitled to hit on women, to sexually uh, approach women, to sexually harass women, to uh, assess women, to create, as it's known in court, a hostile work environment by running around with their dicks out. So you have to be careful that you are not creating a hostile work environment by running around with your dick out. If there is someone at work that you are attracted to and Tinder hasn't brought you together, control for dickful thinking, control for your ego. You may be misreading signals that this woman or these women have sent you as expressions of perhaps sexual or romantic interest when they are just smiling at you and being deferential because women are socialized to smile at men and be deferential to men. And so what you want to do, if there's someone at work that you're interested in asking out, if you're a dude, I think is to hang out, go to those group social functions after work, mingle, interact, and see if what you're getting off the clock when they don't necessarily have to interact with you or be nice to you is the same thing that you're getting on the clock. And of course, if you have more power at work than some of these women that you are interested in perhaps acting out, that is another thing that has to be factored in because you need to make sure that someone doesn't feel coerced or threatened into deferring to you to the point that they actually go out on a date with you that they don't want to go on. So if you get to a point, if Tinder didn't do it, but hanging out socially after work in these group settings and you're assessing and vetting and doing your due diligence and your advance work and you think, yes, she would welcome this and she hasn't asked you out yet, which is a thing that does sometimes happen. When you ask this person from work out, it is crucial that you invite rejection. It is, it is crucial that you invite the no, that you give them permission to say no to you in the ask as a part of the ask. I'd like to go out on a date sometime. I'd like to hang out sometime. Catch a movie, maybe, sometime. 
and make it clear that you're asking them out on a date. You're not asking them to just hang out and then say, if I've misread you, if the answer is no, please, please say no. And it'll be awkward for five minutes and then we'll both get over it. But I promise you that I can hear no and that I'm a big boy and I can handle and roll with rejection. And so if it's no, please tell me no. And then you're likelier to get that no if it's a no. But you want that no if it's a no because you want to then move on to the person who wants to see you. If I were a man, if I were a straight man in the workplace these days, again, my first impulse, my first option, my first go-to would be Tinder. These technologies that can bring us together and bring us together with people who are in our immediate proximity, our coworkers, even, safely and in a mutual way because you both have to swipe in the right direction to be matched. Hi, Dan. I'm a... 20-something, early-ish 20s um, straight woman. I have been single for a little bit, and I'm pretty athletic, and I found myself in these, you know, social athletic situations, like partner things, but I seem to always get hit on by married men. They're usually around the same age, like they're in their early to mid-30s, Sometimes they've got a kid and I feel like they ask me to, you know, do these social athletic things with them, but then they like push my boundaries and push boundaries in a way that I don't know how to deal with because I enjoy having them in my life, but like, I don't want to get too close to them because people's wives can get really hurt by those kinds of scenarios where I know that they're in a monogamous relationship. So I guess what I'm wondering is like, why, like, why do they do this? Like, it's so uncomfortable and I can't do anything back. And I I feel like I can't really tell them always what they're doing because it's so subtle, but sometimes it's really loud. I don't know. I just like, I'm kind of tired of, of this married men thing. I'm, I'm tired of them doing this. And it's like, sometimes they don't even say that they're married until, you know, a few few sessions in when they've already been kind of hitting on me and like do I just cut them off do I essentially friend break up with them like maybe I should do that if someone has obtained your friendship under false pretenses if they hid the fact that they were married from you made you think that they wanted to pursue whatever athletic pursuit you're pursuing with you in a friendly way and then hit on you in a creepy way and then only then told you that they were married are all these guys taking their wedding rings off yeah you're allowed to terminate these friendships these friendships that weren't friendships and now that you've noticed this particular pattern if some guy approaches you wanting to play beach volleyball or whatever it is that you do or go mountain climbing with you and you're concerned he might be another one of these married guys just straight up ask him hey are you married i've had bad experiences with Guys telling me that they're into synchronized swimming, which is my jam, only to discover later that what they were interested in was my jam. And so not interested in hanging out with you, playing softball with you or whatever the sport is. If what you're after is a date, ask me on a date if you're after a date and I'll think about it. Not interested in going on a date with anybody if they're married to someone else and cheating without grounds or cause. So... What's up with you, dude? You have an absolute right to put that out there, to ask those questions, to make those demands 
on someone for that information to make those demands on someone who's making a request or a demand of you for your time and your attention and your athleticism. So put it out there. Ask the questions. Don't put up with the bullshit. Hey, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old bisexual female, and I'm pretty involved in the LGBTQA and like general like queer positive activist community here. I also have a male long-time committed partner. We've been together for 10 years. The thing I'm struggling with is, is it okay that my queer community and friends kind of shame me for having a male partner? I don't really know how to deal with it. It is not okay that your queer quote-unquote community and your queer quote-unquote friends shame you for having a male partner. I would encourage you to find a better corner of the queer community to hang out in, perhaps a corner of the queer community with more bi folks in it and hopefully less biphobia shot through it and to get rid of any Buddy who claims to be your friend who would say such a shitty, petty, hateful, stupid, biphobic thing to you. Cut these people out of your life. You can be in LGBTQ activism. And yes, you will encounter some people in queer activism who aren't fully up to speed on all the Q issues, all the I issues, all the T issues, all the B issues, all the whatever issues. And sometimes you have to educate people. But that requires you to confront people who are being fucking ignorant douchebags. And someone who shames you for having a, an opposite sex partner as a bi woman and claims you're any less queer than they are is an idiot who ne needs to be confronted, needs to be educated. If that exhausts you, not necessarily your job, as they say, to educate others. And you can just withdraw from this, again, corner of the queer community or terminate these friendships. But you don't have to absorb this abuse. You don't have to take this shit. You should fling it back if you are interested in perhaps bringing these people around and remaining in relationship with them. Fling that shit back at them. Confront them about their biphobia, about their bi erasure, about their bullshit. And if they can't get over their bullshit, if they keep coming at you with this bullshit – Fuck them. Don't hang out with them. Don't see them. Go find other people, better people that you can do activism with instead of these shitty people. All right. Before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Queer Veg tweets going from hashtag Savage Lovecast to Girls Gotta Eat podcast is so weird. They think pegging is crazy, bitch. That shit is vanilla. Vanilla is relative. Vanilla is in the eye of the beholder. I don't think pegging is that kinky. You don't think pegging is that kinky? If the hosts of Girls Gotta Eat podcast think it's kinky, that is, of course, their right, their perspective, their subjective judgment. Gyne MD tweets, incredible job on the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Jen Gunter. Long live the Goop Slayer. Jen, of course, always an incredible guest, an incredible writer. And her book that you should get, you should buy, you should read, The Vagina Bible, now on the New York Times bestseller list. Congrats, Jen. Regarding the call we took a few weeks ago about women rejecting short men, Caroline Beans tweets, a woman called into the Savage Lovecast to rant about how superficial women are for rejecting short men. And I am wondering if anyone has broken the news to her about the beauty standards that those same short men have for women. And if so, 
how she is recovering. Caroline added, she called it the most superficial bullshit ever, which makes me think she has never read the comments below a photo of a woman before on the internet. Yeah, I think I'm just going to let Caroline have the last word on the whole rejecting shorter men issue. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a queer social worker and therapist from New York, and I'm calling to respond to episode 672. You caution a caller about the possibility that his attraction to his therapist will complicate the therapeutic relationship, but I think you're missing the fact that sometimes attraction to a therapist can actually fuel and motivate the therapy and can be a powerful opportunity to practice discussing uncomfortable things with someone whose job it is, is to acknowledge and hold your emotions without shaming you. Also, depending on the professional background of the therapist, it's likely that it would not be okay for the therapist to ever become sexually involved with the caller, even after a single session of therapy, even years later. If I were to do that as a social worker, I could lose my license. Hi, Dan. This is a response to your last episode with the person who wanted to make a dildo of their lover and didn't know how to, uh, you know, go about that. I don't think they have to tell anybody that that's their lover's dick. Like, they can just make the dildo and just say they bought that dildo and only they could know and use it. You don't have to say, like, this is so-and-so's dick. It could just be a dildo. Hi, this is a response call to the woman in episode 672 who was asking about dental dams. In my last 25 years of professional lesbianism, I have used the dental dam precisely once in the 90s with a girlfriend as a joke. No one uses dental dams. If you want to lick something off plastic get a candy bar, let it melt, and go to town. If you want to eat pussy, do it bareback. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. You can also record a question on your own phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Try to keep them under three minutes. I want to send out a very special thank you to Kelsey, who bought a Magnum membership for Ryan. Ryan appreciates it, Kelsey, and so do I. Next week, the Savage Lovecast will be in Chicago, Madison, and Minneapolis. Come join me. Our Minneapolis stop includes special guest Stormy Daniels helping me answer your sex questions. Head over to savagelovecast.com slash events to get your tickets now. And my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump, will be stopping in Sacramento and Denver this weekend. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash tour for tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller. And be sure to follow Jill Duggar Dillard, that's her married name, Dillard, on Twitter at Jill M. Dillard. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Duggar, pardon me, Nancy Hartunian, and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>